0: This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Procam, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Hello, everyone. Hello. Today, we're going to talk about why your 401k options are lousy and what you can do about it. And Morgan Housel is back to talk about what you should do when the market crashes because it's going to happen someday. Spoiler. We'll also answer your questions about annuities. All this and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Conflicts of interest abound in finance. So, here's another one to ruin your day. According to research by Boston College, one hidden reason why the options in your 401k plan are lousy is because big mutual fund companies like Fidelity, Vanguard, etc., often administer the plans and then stock them with their poor performing Funds. i don't know bro you're on our 401 committee can you explain this better than i did just so everyone can feel an appropriate level of outrage sure
1: so everyone at your 401k you have a trustee and in, in our case the might fool it's a bank and the bank helps us choose the mutual funds within our 401k however that trustee can also be a mutual fund company and what this study found was that when you have a mutual fund company as a trustee of your 401k they're more likely to choose their own funds they don't have to but they can in fact the study found that they're more likely, twice as likely to kick out funds from another company and more likely to include funds from their own company. Obviously, that makes them money. The problem is, a lot of the times, these added funds have subpar returns. In fact, um, last year, the, uh, Fidelity settled a class action lawsuit from its own employees who sued Fidelity. For including too many fidelity funds in the four hundred and one k, and too many high cost fidelity funds. So
0: fidelity funds employees sued their employer for administering their four hundred and one k and doing a lousy job of it.
1: That's right, because what a ringing endorsement! <laughs> the four hundred and one k provider has a fiduciary responsibility. We've talked about this before. That means a legal um, legal obligation to put. The person's interests first. So if, when you offer a 401k, you have to put their interest first and not, if you're Fidelity, Fidelity's interest first and just order, offering Fidelity funds. So that settled last year and I'm sure now they have more choices.
0: So what do you do if your 401k options are awful?
1: Well, um, one thing to do is consider, first of all, how much you want to contribute to the 401k. You should always take advantage of the match up to that point. Then if you have a lousy 401k and you're married, maybe contribute more to your spouse's plan or look to an IRA, whether a traditional or a Roth, because in an IRA, you have more investment and in choices and more control over the costs. If you can max out both a 401k and an IRA, great. Most people can't do it. So I think it's fine to do 401k up to match and then an IRA.
0: And just accept that your money's going to a potentially lousy 401k option?
1: Yeah, because it's still worth it when you're getting that match. I mean if you're gonna put in $1000 in the 401k and your your boss is going to put in 500. That's a good deal. It's hard to pass that up even with lousy funds. The important thing to know though is when you leave that company, you can take those with you as a rollover rather than leaving them in there. Just make sure you move it to another to an IRA or another 401k. Don't cash it out cuz then you'll owe taxes and penalties. And
0: then you can put it in whatever you want. Exactly. Yeah. So that's right. not bad. All right. right so just suck it up, I guess. I don't love that advice. I don't like advice where it's like you just have to deal with it. Well, them. okay. So,
1: the other thing to do, and we have this on the Mollyful website, a letter to give to your boss about, hey, dear boss, let's get a better 401k. If the rally boss rally
0: the cause, yeah. If,
1: if the boss and the HR crew are part of the company, it's their 401k too, right? They have an inv- a vested interest in making it better. The deal is, it does cost money to run a 401k. So, the it might be your 401k stinks because the employer, the boss, has said, listen, I can't shoulder these expenses, so I'm just going to have to pass them on to you. And that's how they do it. It's much more common in small plans than bigger plans. If you're like, I have a company of like 20 people, you often don't have choice. You may not be able to go to Vanguard or Fidelity. You have to go to like the local insurance guy. And not only are you not going to have low costs, but then that person is going to come and make recommendations for you. And there have been studies that showed that those recommendations are also conflicted. That financial advisor who's helping you with the plan, quote unquote, helping you with the plan, is going to put you in funds where they're going to make more money. And I I saw this recently from a a Motley Fool reader who had a 403b, which is like a 401k, but it's for nonprofits. Often an insurance product, and the person was selling a poorly performing fund, no index funds in the 403b, so no low low cost choices. But that's because the financial advisor would make more money that way.
0: All right. So if you don't like it, sharpen your pitchforks. And storm the castle. That's right. Make make some noise.
1: 401k power to the people.
0: So Morgan Hazel is back this week. I'm hey, here. Morgan, how you doing? Good, how you doing? I'm good. He's All a right. senior analyst on Motley Fool One and an expert in behavioral finance. And to kick it off, I wanted to read off some really fun little headlines from the news recently, All right. which include, doomsday clock for global market crash strikes one minute to midnight as central <laughs> banks lose control. That's one. Another one, an expert that correctly called the last two stock market crashes is now predicting another one. And then the last one I thought was fun is, the China crash is a canary in a coal mine. So Morgan is back to talk about how, in the eloquent words of Samuel L. Jackson, you can hold on to your butts when the market tanks.
2: I, we're a family show, so I can't even say the words that I want to 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 respond to those headlines. yeah they they drive me nuts and I think they're totally irresponsible for people. The second one, I think where he said, uh, the expert who predicted the last two, those are the ones that that I think I find are the are are the worst because in almost all of those cases, it's, Expert predicted the 2008 crash. Yeah, but he had been predicting it since 1970. Right. And there's a big difference between he predicted the crash and he predicts crashes, one of which happened to occur in 2008. There was there was no there's not a single person who I think in hindsight you can look back and say correctly predicted the crash of 2008 for the right reason. There are a lot of people who predicted it for the wrong reason. They said we're going to have a crash because interest rates are going to surge and the dollar is going to collapse when the Opposite occurred, and there are a lot of people who predicted the crash, maybe for what looked like the right reason, but they had been predicting it for ten or twenty years before that.
1: And they've and they've predicting they predicted the crash correctly, but they didn't predict the rebound. So right. Even as stocks started to recover in March of two thousand nine, they were still saying this is a, this is a head fake. Don't fall for this. Stay out of the market. I and mean, people like Peter Schiff and Nouriel Rubini, these people who who became famous for predicting that crash, stayed bearish. Well through the recovery. Well,
2: and virtually all of those guys that you just mentioned, too. The catalyst that they thought was going to cause the global... The, the global economy to crash, was surging interest rates and a collapsing dollar. Instead, interest rates fell to zero, and the dollar became the strongest it had been in a decade. Right. So and they've they probably been it, saying,
1: interest rates are going to go up, they can't stay Oh, they've slip. been saying that for six and, years and now. And here we are, it's right.
2: still generally where they were. And recommended buying gold and X, Y, Z. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh gold. <laughs> so, so I, I think that's what drives me crazy about when people say, expert who predicted the last crisis. It's giving them this sense of authority that almost none of them deserve.
0: Man, I... You you guys just came passionate. out of the passionate gates running at a sprint. Wow! Um, all right, well let's take a step back for a moment. To talk about um, market crashes. Is there like a strict definition for like? Does someone with an economics degree say, "Oh, yep, yeah, it's official. This is a market crash." It would
2: say a bear market is twenty percent when you've declined twenty percent from the recent
0: high. In a Quarter, a week, a month, a day? From, from the recent high. From the, from, the recent just from the recent high. So at you know. any yeah. point. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the market's been really good for a really long time, yeah. which is me leading a lot of people to think it's high time we're due for a bear market. Do you I, feel we are high time due for it? Not to be like calling the market here, yeah. but th- these things come and go at a pretty I don't know. How often do we have market crashes? So if you look
2: at like the last hundred years, there's been roughly on average a 10 percent decline about every year, a 20 de- percent decline two or three times per decade, a 30 percent decline about once a decade, and a 50 percent decline twice in the last century. Uh, and, and you know, especially when we're talking about something like 10 percent declines, they tend to happen with relative frequency about every year. There have been some stretches in the 1990s and over the last three years where we haven't had a 10% correction, but over the long stretch of history, they're fairly common. But crashes don't happen because we're due for one. That's that's just not how they work. They happen because specific events transpire in the economy or something that shakes people's confidence or a war or an impending recession. It's not something that happens just because we're due. And a lot of people think, oh, we've been X number of years since we've had a market crash, so that means we're due. And I just don't think it's really—that's just not how it happens. You know, during the 1990s, there was a period where we went almost 10 years without a recession, and I think something like seven years without a 20% pullback. So but you can—you can, you can so go depressed
0: long... in the 90s. Remember, true? we were all listening to like grunge R. E. M. music yeah. and REM. Yeah. Why were we so depressed if <laughs> we things had it were made so back then <laughs> Yeah. We had yeah.
2: so I think I think the the paradox of market crashes is that we know they happen with frequency, but we can never say when they're going to happen or have some sort of forecast of when it should happen next. Let's take a look though at valuation then, because you've written about this. So while
1: valuation is not a great short term indicator, do you agree that it is a good longer term indicator of future returns in the sense that the higher the market goes and is and is the higher the valuation is measured by P.E. and various other things, does that increase the chances that people should expect some other type of event or play it safer?
2: I would say yes, but to a lesser degree than a lot of people think. If you look at um, one of the most popular valuation metrics is the CAPE-PE ratio, the cyclically adjusted P.E. It's a valuation metric that takes previous earnings and adjusts them for inflation and averages them together. Um, you know, if, you, if you go back in time, the long-term average is 16. The market trades at 16 times earnings. Right now it's 24 or something. So that makes you look at, you know, wow, the average is 16, we're at 24. That's Yeesh. that's dangerous. But so the the long-term history of Cape goes back to 1880. Since 1990, it's been above its long-term average in all but 16 months. So you look at this and you say like does a really long-term history back to 1880 really tell us anything about the stock market today, or if things changed in the last 20 or 30 years between accounting metrics and how companies do business and the amount of sales they do overseas, that makes these long-term valuation metrics that may have been applicable 50 years ago less applicable today. I think they still are something that investors should pay attention to today. But I think it's dangerous when people say, the stock market is trading at over x times earnings and that means i'm going to get out or that means i'm going to make a big adjustment to my portfolio you know the the pe ratio today is about 24 it was about the same 24 in 2004 10 years ago and from 2004 through today that 10 11 year period the market earned about 8% a year which is almost exactly on the nose historic average so you started in 2004 with valuations that you know, by the textbook would have told you, you're going to earn really poor returns over the next 10 years. And you didn't. You earned pretty great returns over the next 10 years. Of course, in between that, you had a 2008 financial crisis and all sorts of chaos. But over the 10-year period, starting at really high valuations, you did great. So, it's not, it's not so strong that you can just look at valuations today and say, with certainty, we're going to earn low returns over the next 10 years we're going to earn lower returns over the next 10 years than we would if stocks were way cheaper today most likely but i think people sometimes take these things too literally yeah as a financial planner i would say that's it's probably the most important part of it like i would never use valuation
1: to determine whether i should be in stocks or out of stocks but if the market is highly valued and i'm running my retirement numbers and i need to figure out okay am i saving enough to retire if it's a highly valued market, I'm going to assume I'm going to earn less than that average. I mean, these days I would assume maybe six, five percent. Yeah. Hopefully, it'll be more than that.
2: Um, I, I think it's definitely something to adjust your expectations down. Yeah. It gets dangerous when people adjust their expectations so far that they say, "I'm going to get out of the market." That's right. what's dangerous. Right.
0: So, is your advice for people amidst all these headlines, doomsday clock, et cetera, et cetera? Is it just Really? To stay stay the course?
2: I think Just that's, be cool? I think that would pretty much always be my advice, no matter what the economy of the stock market was doing outside. That would pretty much be always my advice. And I don't think there's any evidence that doing anything different is, is superior. There's, there's so much uh, There's so many calls in investing to action. You should do this, you should sell this, and buy this, and get out of this, and rotate into this, and be wary of this, and this metric is going to predict X. And there's so much evidence that almost all of it is nonsense. It just leads people in the wrong direction. And I think if you're a long-term investor and you accept that we're going to have recessions and bear markets, and these things are normal, inevitable parts of the market, but as a long-term investor, you ride them out and realize they're, that they're a normal part of investing, that's, that is, I, I think, overwhelmingly, history will show, is the most sensible way to invest.
0: So, we can talk about the sensible way to invest, but when we're in the midst of it and everything goes sideways and people are, you know, can't breathe at night thinking about how, you know, all of their retirement just went down the turlet. Um, is there Is there like a mantra or something that you can give our listeners to say to themselves to remind them that this is, it's cool, just be cool, everything's gonna be okay? I don't know
2: if there's a mantra, but I would say that people should look at their past behavior and look at how they reacted in 2008. What did you do? Did you panic and sell everything? Look at your past behavior. I hope not, but a lot of people did. But look at your past behavior and realize that it's probably a good indication of your future behavior and that you should set up your portfolio around that reality. So if you were the kind of person that panicked in 2008, maybe you shouldn't have as much money in stocks. Maybe you should have some more in cash and bonds that are going to earn a lower return during the bull market, but are going to help you sleep at night and keep your head on straight during the next bear market.
1: The other thing I think to keep in mind is that people need to appreciate when they really need the money. So, let's say you're 45 and you want to retire at 65. So, you don't need your money for 20 years, and that's only part of your money you hope to live to your 70, 75, 80. So as a part of your portfolio you don't need for 30 to 40 years. So, if the market goes down tomorrow, it's okay. You have decades to ride it out. You don't need to freak out right now for money you don't need for a long time.
0: Yeah? So, yeah. everything's going to be okay. <laughs> I wouldn't go Maybe. that far. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: Come on, we need to go out on a high note. Uh, all
1: right, so my little mantra is: be a short-term pessimist, long-term optimist. And that is, any money you need in the short term, assume the market is going to go down. Just stay in cash. Don't even bother trying to play the odds. And we're like, well, the market's up 60% of calendar years. I'm going to just go ahead and ride that. Or it's actually even closer to like 75%, isn't it? So I'm just going to run those out. Don't do that. Just stay in cash. But long-term it's going to work out because the U.S. economy and the global economy is going to grow and that's going to be reflected in stocks. You're going to be okay.
0: Yeah, Morgan? Nothing to add. We're going to be okay. Yep. You're going to be okay. Alright, Morgan. Well, thank you for joining us again. Thanks. Um, it's great having you, and hopefully we can have you on again in the future.
2: Well, don't get greedy.
0: Well, <laughs> 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 Let's head to the mailbag! We've gotten so much mail from you guys, it's awesome! Uh, today, we only have time to answer one question, but it comes from Rick. Rick wants to know, As I am getting prepared for retirement in two to four years, I've been considering investing in fixed annuities using funds not needed in the near future. Is this a good play to consider? We've actually gotten a few questions about annuities.
1: Right. Annuities are very popular, very boring, so start, try to stay awake here. But, Allison, here's why people like them. because With an annuity, you get one of the following benefits, or more of the following. Guaranteed income for life, uh, guaranteed rate of return, tax-deferred growth, a guaranteed death benefit for your heirs, so no matter what the market does when you die, they're going to get a certain amount, and then maybe bankruptcy and creditor protection. All that is wonderful stuff. That sounds great. It's great. I'm sold. You're sold. The problem with all this is the cost. If annuities were much cheaper, I would be recommending annuities left and right. So for the average annuity, the cost per year is two and a half percent. It can go as high as five percent. Um, annuities are also very complicated, so I'm just going to break it down. Uh, we're hearing the question here is about a fixed annuity, and that is almost like a CD. Almost, it's going to offer you a certain rate of return. If it's a good rate, and it comes from a good insurance company, I don't think that's a bad idea. The problem with any annuity is, though, you got to, you need to understand when you can get your money back. Sometimes you pay a penalty for up to 10 years if you get your money out sooner, so I don't think that's a bad idea. Uh, another type is the income-for-life annuity. You hand over, these days, like $100,000, someone who's a 65-year-old male would get $6,500 a year for life, every year, um, which I don't think is a bad idea. It's like creating your own pension. It's guaranteed income. Don't have to worry about the stock market. Don't have to worry about living too long and outliving your money. Um, the problem is, it is an irreversible decision. Once you hand over that money, they have it. Once you die, that money stops, although you can do some things about having it continue to maybe your spouse, but for a lower amount. That's not a bad idea, either, for a certain amount of money. Actually, there's studies that show that the more guaranteed income you have, the happier you are in retirement. Just don't do it with all your money. The worst of the annuities is the variable annuity, and it's like a 401k. You contribute your money, and you choose from 10, 20 mutual funds. The thing is, you don't get a tax break when you put the money in, so there's no deduction like you would get with a traditional 401k. And that's where the expenses are the highest, 2.5%. I'm looking at one that's from Transamerica that really is the highest expense is 4.99% Oof. a year. And the prospectus is 480 pages long, and you have to leave the money in there for nine years. If you take it out before then, you can take a little bit, you pay a penalty. Like there's just very few reasons why someone would choose that type of annuity. The problem is those type of annuities are sold 10 times more than the other annuities that have some benefits. That's because of the huge commissions you can I get from gonna selling I was going to say, those.
0: that's because someone's making money selling that's them. That's
1: exactly the problem. So, basically, most annuities, I would say, avoid them except for these ones that provide a, a guaranteed rate of return or a guaranteed income for a very, just a small portion of your portfolio.
0: Alright. Well, that's not bad. That wasn't too boring.
1: That wasn't too boring? Really?
0: No, I don't think so. Oh,
1: well, thank you. That's, you're only saying that because I have my shirt off. Not really. <laughs> I don't really have my shirt off. No.
0: <laughs> Again, folks, I'm sure you're glad that this is a radio show. All right, and that's actually going to do it for today. <laughs> show is edited by Rick Engdahl with theme music composed and performed by Dayana Yoakum. Our an- email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, get your shirt back on. This is a workplace. I'm Allison Southwick. Fool on. Age your pants!